Hey, listeners, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. This may be episode 100. We are right around that number, including bonus episodes that have come out. Thank you so much for listening for all this time. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. So thank you. A couple of quick updates, and then we'll jump right into the episode. First off, we have now picked our two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye. I was down in Nashville in June, picked two barrels that were completely different from each other, but both just knocked our socks off. So those are going to be going live sometime in the early fall. I will keep you up to date on that. Number two, we have multiple other barrel picks coming. The first one that's probably going to come out is going to be a barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks. This was chosen in partnership with Perry over at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. So you co-listeners are really going to love that. And we are brainstorming some sticker ideas right now that is going to make it even more attractive for your shelf. Hopefully you'll drink it, but it'll be good for the shelf too. Another barrel pick coming out, Spirits of French Lick, is getting chosen as we speak. And I'll keep you updated on that. Last thing, and then I'll let you go right into the episode, is... During my last update, I mentioned that there were four spots available at that top tier of $25 a month. At $25 a month on Patreon, you get not only first access to, well, everything, and access to everything that I put out, but you also get top tier priority for barrel picks when they come out. You also get the opportunity to join me on a barrel pick. Already, we've had members of that tier down with me in Nashville for the Jack Daniels pick, helping out in the Spirits of French Lick pick, and also given some input on the barrel pick. So every pick from now and going forward is going to have a Patreon member, at least one from that tier, on the pick with us. As of today, there is only one spot remaining in that $25 tier. So if you've been holding out, if you're pushing it off for any reason, I'd say jump on it because this plot is probably going to go quickly. With that, I'll say, you know, of course, if the $25 is out of your range right now, we still want you to be a supporter. We still want you to be involved. The next tier down, $5 a month, is going to get you that second access to all barrel picks. I can't speak for the $25 tier, but pretty sure there'll still be some barrels and bottles available for you at the $5 a month tier. That just really helps us grow, covers expenses, and keeps the podcast going with these awesome guests that we've got. All right, I have talked for almost three minutes. That is a ton of time. I am sorry for that. But with that, that's all the updates for this month. I'll keep you updated as they go along. Now, here's a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. This week, we're talking about something, again, we haven't talked about at all on this podcast. We're doing that a lot recently, trying to mix things up. And I'm thrilled to welcome on Someone from a distillery we've had on before, Blaine Black Button Distilling in Rochester, New York. You can go back and listen to my episode with them from, I think it was the episode in the 60s or something like that, but I'll post a link in the show notes. But today I'm joined by Mr. Jason Barrett, a co-founder of Black Button. And he is here not to talk about Black Button, but to talk more about Barrel Brokerage. And with that, Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me, David. So uh, as I said, this is something we have not tackled before. It's in 
you know, it's tangential to almost every episode, if you think about it. And after talking to uh, the guys over at Mammoth, Ari Sussman, and uh, talking to Mammoth, and also Whiskey Gypsy, I started thinking about, you know, where do these barrels come from? Never talked about it. We had one episode where we talked about sherry barrels, but we ended up talking more about the sherry styles themselves. Yep. Um, and it was a fantastic conversation with Monique Houston, which I'm sure you're, you've met at some point. She knows everybody. Uh, but I wanted to come back and think about how do we get the barrels that make our whiskeys a little different? Uh, so with that, uh, I will also say, as I said to Jason before recording, normally we do a lot of research for these episodes. Uh, this one, you know, there haven't been a lot of podcasts about barrel brokerage and a lot, a lot of uh, articles even about them either. Very few websites. Uh, it's more industry side. So with that, we're going to, it's going to be a little more free flowy than usual just because, hey, can't make an outline if you don't know what you're talking about. So uh, let's just start off with uh, how you got into barrel brokerage. Yeah. So probably a little bit surprising. Uh, Black Button is a farm distillery. We put the corn in the ground all the way through serving it in our tasting room and do all the production ourselves. Uh, and we never really had a lot of exposure to the barrel brokering um, prior to about three years ago. And we realized two things as we were a couple of things as we were coming out of 2020. Um, one that there was that although we love the farm to table, you know, methodology of our products, uh, not everybody had that same story. And that's okay. You know, different people have different routes to market and different reasons for being. Um, but two, that we could really do more by partnering with folks than by siloing or excluding folks. And so this sort of started out with some contract production where folks, mostly from New York City, would come upstate and say, hey, I've got a great recipe or I've been running a distillery for a while in New York City and I'm tapped out of space. You have cheaper space upstate and you're closer to the corn. Could you make this whiskey for me? And then also uh, in 2020, we, you know, we didn't hit some of our growth targets. You know, it was a very challenging year. And so all of a sudden we had some extra whiskey and we found that there were people that had a short, a shortage of whiskey. And so we were able to sell them some of our aged whiskey, keep our production running. And before you know it, we started to discover there were a lot of folks looking for aged whiskey. And I've had the pleasure that, uh, that I've been in this industry for 11 years. I've been on a number of safety committees across different industries. I've gone to lots of trade shows and so you end up meeting lots of folks. And as you get talking to them, it turns out lots of distilleries have a little extra of this, that, or the other in the back of the warehouse. And a lot of distilleries are looking for either large or small amounts of age product. And um, and we didn't find that there was somebody really effectively organizing that system. You know, there really wasn't a market if you had 10 of this and 20 of that, but oftentimes it was great whiskey. Uh, and in fact, sometimes, you know, some some folks that even just didn't quite meet their spec, but sometimes that was for good reasons. I We had one client where they had, lay, they had had a barrel shortage. They had laid down a bunch of barrels in a different cooperage than their normal one. 
four years go by, the whiskey is distinctly different from their uh, from their regular stuff. In my opinion, it was actually distinctly better, but it didn't meet the brand promise that they were looking for. So here they've got these 60 extra barrels. They're five years old. It's a beautiful mash bill. They're ready to be sold and that story to be told, but they're not the right fit for the original owner. And so we started connecting round pegs with round holes and square pegs with square holes. And before you know it, we started moving thousands of barrels around the world from folks in Spain that wanted Canadian whiskey to folks in New Zealand that wanted bourbon. And the logistics of all of this proved to be a huge component um, because there's some places where you can ship right in the barrel and others in a sea container that's got a bladder in it of bulk and other places where it has to go in a sealed metal drum, depending on the laws of the transportation departments of that country. And so that was a, a huge learning curve. But as we've been figuring it out now, as folks are calling us and they're saying, hey, I need to get this from here to there. Oh, we've got an answer for that. Um, and I'm not saying we're perfect after only three years, but we moved almost 40,000 barrels of rum, whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Irish whiskey, GNS, which is the industrial term for vodka before it's had water added to it, all over the globe. Um, in fact, I think we've touched all six of the uh, inhabited continents. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really fun to be involved in ongoing projects, you know, people that want to buy the same thing for years and single one-offs. Uh, I met a gentleman at a trade show. He called me a few months later. His friend has a barrel of a uh, single malt made at a little place called McAllen. It's 30 years old. It's a hogshead barrel. So an oversized barrel. It is shockingly full, uh, almost 80% full, which after 30 years is unusual. Yeah, but this yeah. barrel ended up not leaking very much and was kind of in a back corner of one of the warehouses. Because it's so old, it actually comes with the ability to use the McAllen name. And it's for sale for $1.2 million. And if you have $1.2 million burning a hole in your pocket, I can get you your own barrel of 30-year-old McAllen. And I never would have thought I would have had the opportunity to say that. And obviously the people that can take advantage of that are few and far between, but we have several celebrities that have plunked down $10,000 deposits to taste that barrel because naturally uh, tastes of that would have been in high demand if there wasn't a deposit to go with them. But somebody that's gonna plunk down $10,000 to try it They've got to be pretty serious. They've also got to have some pretty serious money. Again, I wouldn't say that's our day to day. Our bread and butter is moving, whether it's MGP bourbon or you know whiskey out of Canada or Ireland. Um, it's a lot of your stuff that's going to end up in a thirty or forty dollar bottle on the shelf, where the story is a little less about where it's made and a little more about either the character behind it or some of the finishing that they do to it at the end stage. But I, it's been a really exciting journey, and we're just getting started. So I'm looking forward to talking to you more uh, about how some of those intricacies work. It's a fascinating business, and to to take it on at you know the beginning of COVID, plus all the shipping issues that we've had starting then and since then, 
with ebbs and flows. I mean, I wouldn't have even thought it kind of practical, I guess, if I can put myself in that headspace. It might not have been, um, <laughs> but there were kind of two things that I, I will admit this was not like a grand plan that we thought about for a long time and then executed. It, it really came down to two things occurring that we um, that we were trying to solve. So one is, uh, so my family has run a button company since 1922. And we specialized in water buffalo horns, which is a water buffalo horn buttons. So they are a natural product. Water buffalo lose their horns every fall. Um, you collect them, cut it in half, use steam to bend the horn, and then drill it out uh, with a core drill, and then actually turn them on a little lathe. Um, but as a natural product, moving around the world, they um, they required a lot of customs and a lot of shipping, you know, clearances to do that. So my family has a lot of experience in that. And what's ironic is that we use the same customs broker that my family has used since 1982. Because if you can get water buffalo horn through U.S. Customs, you can also get whiskey through customs. So that longstanding family relationship helped set us up for success. And the second one was just a complaint and turning <laughs> lemons into lemonade. So I'm on the phone. I mentioned earlier we were doing some contract work where we were selling some of our aged whiskey. And we were very novice to this. You know, we had never sold a big plot of uh, of aged whiskey or you know, several million dollars out of our own warehouse. And so I was calling around to friends in the industry and uh, and making sure that I was dealing with this correctly. You know, how did it how did the terms work? How would the contract work? Uh, I will admit we knew next to nothing. And uh, one of my friends um, who was very helpful in this, uh, who was a big whiskey buyer for a large NDP, non-distillery producer. Um, he calls me or I call him one day and he's clearly in a bad mood. You know, he's just, you ever talk to somebody, you just tell that, that there's sand in their, you know, in their oil. Oh yeah. And so uh, I asked him like, yeah, what's, what's wrong? Cause usually you're a happy go lucky guy. You live in Kentucky, you work in the whiskey business. And he goes, my boss just dumped this problem on my desk. And I don't think he understands. I mean, I'm a whiskey buyer. I buy the whiskey we need. I take care of the planning. I do all the scheduling, but I don't sell whiskey. I I buy what we need and that's it. Well, what do you need to sell? I need to sell 30,000 barrels of Canadian whiskey that are left over from a project that we don't need them anymore. What? 30,000 30, <laughs> barrels? Yeah, they're in this warehouse and the warehouse lease runs out in like 18 months and I got to have them out of there because the the you know, the owners don't want to pay the rent anymore. We're going to close that warehouse. But we got to empty it. Okay. Um, what is it? Oh, well, it's between six years old and 30 years old. I'm, I'm sorry, what? You, you have thousands of barrels of like 20 and 30 year old whiskey that you don't know what to do with? Pretty much. And it's a lot of work and it's going to take up a ton of my time and it's not even going to be in my bonus. Okay. Um, what if I bought all of it? And the line just goes quiet for a minute. And he goes, Jason, I, 
I appreciate that, but come on, man. Like you, you got a little place upstate. You're, you're not going to buy 30,000 barrels. I was like, I, I think I can. Um, which he of course follows up with. I don't think you have the money. I was like, okay, fair point. I do not have the money, <laughs> but I will. What about this? I will put down a million dollar deposit against the barrels before any barrels leave your warehouse. I will pay you in full. So you have no risk. And at the end of 18 months, if I have not sold all the barrels or almost all of them, you can keep my million dollars. And you got to understand, I mean, my company is tiny. We, we, we're we doing three or four million dollars a year in revenue to make a million dollar bet on a phone call that was supposed to be about <laughs> something else. Well, let's just say my CE, my CFO was about ready to kill me when I walked back into her office. So before we signed the deal, we got samples and we called a few other people. And over the last 18 months, we've sold 28,000 of those 30,000 barrels. And they've gone all over the world, to Spain, to Kentucky, across Canada. In fact, if a product has been released over about 15 years old and it had Canadian rye in it, there's a good chance I supplied those barrels. And... So we make this deal. We cut, yeah, you know, we cut this check. His his boss is thrilled because literally, like, you know, a few weeks into this, and they've got a plan, or rather, they've made their problem my problem. But this is a good problem to have, good friends to have. And so I start calling around. I called a few people before we signed for it, but I start calling <laughs> around. And as I'm calling folks and saying, "Hey, I've got twenty-year-old Canadian whiskey for sale, ten-year-old Canadian whiskey for sale." Um, of a variety of mash bills and I've got samples and we can bottle it for you or tanker it for you. You What do you want to do with this stuff? Um, About half the folks were interested in buying, but the really remarkable part was a lot of folks were interested in selling. Again, saying, you know, Jason, hey, I'm not interested in buying 20-year-old Canadian whiskey, but if you're running a barrel brokerage, I've got 50 of this, 60 of that, a thousand of these. So, it always bugs me when uh, when somebody ends up saying they lost some barrels in the warehouse and then they <laughs> found them because from a TTB standpoint, that's unlikely you know, that we we all keep pretty good records from a tax perspective. Yeah. But if you think about the massive size of these warehouses. As projects ebb and flow, different barrels be, basically are no longer attached to a product. And depending on the producer, they might hold on to it to see if they need it, or they might want to turn that asset into cash. And that gives rise to some great opportunities and some great brands. I mean, to think about what Redemption Rye and Penelope have done with these great age stocks that belonged to a massive corporation that didn't know how to truly appreciate them is really a a beautiful way of entrepreneurs and people with great tastes and great marketing to connect with great whiskey and get to do some really unique things. We had another set. It was originally uh, Barton 1792 bourbon, aged seven years in Kentucky, transported to Texas, switched into uh, sherry and port casks, and aged five years on the high Texas plateau. 
I can tell, and the, the evaporative losses were obnoxious. Okay. I mean, well yeah. over 60, 70% of the barrel. But what was left, the juice that came out of it was black as night and so rich and so flavorful that the these bottles that all ended up going through a company that does exclusively single barrels, honestly, some of the coolest stuff I've ever tasted, there were only 20 of them. And that combination will probably never happen again, partly because Barton's not selling bulk juice the way they did 15, 20 years ago. And because how random is it that this whiskey went from Kentucky to Texas to being bottled in New York and sold up and down the eastern seaboard by a specialty broker and being able a specialty brand. And I really think there's a lot of future in that creativity. I love fully vertically integrated producers. I am one. But the ability to have access to all these interesting things and connect with these vibrant entrepreneurs who are doing really cool stuff is beautiful. And again, I mean, take Ari, who, who got us here from Mammoth. They're bringing rye in from all over and blending up whole new collaborations of rye while they are also growing their own. And in time, they will be able to do, you know, they, they already are doing beautiful bl blends. And in time, they will switch to making their own. But we've seen that be really successful. Look at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Sure. Look at Castle and Key. Look at Whistlepig. Look at Barrel. There are, and, and Backbone and Bar Bourbon 30. And I could go on and on and on. Sure. These yeah. guys are doing incredible things. And to be able to be a part of that is a lot of fun. And it's particularly ironic since Black Button itself doesn't actually source anything for ourselves. Now, I always argue that's what makes us a good steward of these things, because many folks that broker that also bottle kind of get accused of like taking the, the cream off the top for themselves. Mm. Listen, everything in Black Button legally has to be New York farm. We put the corn in the ground. So when I get in these interesting lots and these interesting challenges, I'm just looking to find the right home for them. I'm not going to end up taking them in myself. And there are so many directions to go here. So the, the yeah, first one sorry. being, no, no, it's fine. The first one being, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself and of course I'm looking to my shelves and thinking the inventory, I'm thinking how many products have come out in the last couple of years, let's say the last two years to be safe with 15, 20, 20 plus year old Canadian whiskey um, of, you know, I'm assuming it would include Canadian light whiskey, rye, like true rye versus what Canadian whiskey can be called rye. You know, that's a whole different conversation. There were a variety of mash bills. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I can think right off the top of a couple of companies that, that had that. And at the time I remember people thinking, where did this stuff come from? You know, where do you suddenly find not only 20 year plus old barrels, but at scale and at volume. Uh, and, you know, they're in Canada, you can think of, and I know I'm just pulling on one example here, but in Canada, you can think of a couple of distilleries that could produce that kind of volume, uh, but there aren't as many as people think. So it kind of narrows it down as to who you can point to. And that kind of sleuthing is always really interesting to me. Uh, I'm not, I'm not as, uh, let's say rabid about it as some, some of my friends even 
some compatriots on the um, podcasting side, but and the writing side. But I do enjoy trying to find those breadcrumbs. Now, the other side of that that I was thinking of, and if you're not allowed to tell me on air, I've got to ask you afterwards about that Kentucky to Texas one, because that sounds right up my alley. Um, if there's any still even available, but I would imagine that in just a short time, you've been doing this, you run into, uh, NDAs and confidentiality a lot. Yes. So, um, you know, one company that I'm, I'm very happy to work with, uh, barrel, as I mentioned, they came out with their gold and their uh, silver bottles last year. I had mixed thoughts on them. I thought they were pretty good products, but that they kind of missed the mark on pricing and the audience for it. But that yeah. that's not really the point here. But the point being that, wow, you can integrate older Canadian stock with younger bourbon, comparatively younger, and make a product that could be worth still maybe not 250 or 500 but you know 100 150 maybe even 200 on a, on a uh, cost basis so so jumping back to the question that was in my mind um i guess did you have to kind of learn about the ndas the the hard way and was that kind of the legal education you got i mean so luckily, uh, some of the folks we started with were some of the larger, you know, more established non-distillery producers uh, around, and therefore we got educated really quickly on what they wanted. Um, you know, I I don't think uh, without having reviewed the long list of NDAs we have, I don't think it's wise for me to start naming names. Of course, um, yeah. but we have worked with many people. Um, and there's there's a lot of interesting things going on around the world. There's a great company in Scotland near Edinburgh that's making a worldwide whiskey. So they're taking American bourbon and Canadian rye and Scotch and Irish whiskey and marrying them together in wooden fooders and blending that into a blend that right now is only available in the UK. But, you know, they're and they're calling it a worldwide whiskey blend. And with great taste and great flexibility and great sourcing, they have, you know, hundreds of options to choose from. And if you think, if you start to think of the whiskey, you know, as of each whiskey as sort of a different color of paint that that artist is wielding, there are artists that mix their own paint and stretch their own canvas and do all of it themselves. And there are folks that buy their paint and buy their canvas and still paint beautiful photo, you know, pictures, not photographs, pictures. Um, and I think we're starting to see more and more of that. I also the the larger operations, that's already what they do. I mean, if you take a place like Buffalo Trace that only has a couple of mash bills and a couple of yeast strains, but very different barrel aging characteristics across their many warehouses, there's a phenomenal number of products that come out of that for peace, if you now start trading or bringing in other th mash bills, other yeast strains, you have the ability to make really unique things, oftentimes only in a one-off experience. You know, there isn't, you know, if there's 108 barrels from the year 2004 left on the planet from this maker, you can't keep making it forever. But 
as we're moving into a, an age of experimentation and people wanting to try different things, I think having more variety and more blending stocks for people to work with, again, is giving these independent bottlers uh, some great opportunity. And, and again, I'll point out that some of the biggest brands on the planet are, were made this way. Johnny Walker, they not only have many, they make many of their single malts in-house, but they're the largest bulk supplier in Scotland. And in fact, they got their start. I mean, independent bottling is almost where whiskey started, where a saloon owner or a grocery owner would buy a barrel from this cooperage and a barrel from that middleman and a barrel from that distillery and age it in the back of their stable and mix it the way they liked it, the way they wanted to taste it. And the whiskey in that saloon, if you came back a year later, might taste different because they weren't bottling it. They weren't, there wasn't consistent supply. You know, you, and in some ways you even had kind of an infinity run. You know, if, if again, if you had a, I mean, they literally used to have barrels behind the bar with a tap on them. And so that barrel starts to get empty. You know, it's maybe only got 20% left in it. And the next cask that he either bought from a traveling salesman or that was in the the warehouse already, if it had the headspace on a Monday when you're not open, you'd hoist that heavier cask, that fuller cask into it. You're not going to pour out 20% of a barrel. You're going to drain that into a bucket and pour it into the next cask. And now when your regulars come in and they're like, hey, I'll take a little more of that whiskey. You know, it might be different. In fact, there's an argument to be made that that's why bourbon is called bourbon. Because originally, you know, you had a very illiterate population and they're coming into saloons in, in New Orleans and scrawled across the heads of the barrels is where they were made at the time. So Bourbon County, even though they were made, you know, bourbon wasn't a specific style. It wasn't made by one company. There were a hundred plus distillers in Bourbon County. Also, Bourbon County used to incorporate the western half of what is now Kentucky and Tennessee. So it was not the Bourbon County, you know, 10 square miles that we have today. Which and is dry, so, I should point out. But continue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Although there is now a distillery. The first distillery in Bourbon County since Prohibition opened, I think, two years ago. Um, but, you know, these guys that couldn't even read, you know, again, you walk up to the bar, you, you, know, you say you want some whiskey. The bartender probably pointed at one and said, you want some Irish or you want some bourbon? And so pretty quickly, even if you can't read, you could recognize that that squiggle was bourbon. And so the next time you walk in, give me some of that bourbon. And I think, again, I'm not saying I know, but there are historians that think that's where we got the name bourbon from today. So it's a long standing tradition. It also happens with the big guys a lot more than people realize. I mean, Bullet, the distillery's three years old, four, maybe. Mm -hmm. The brand's been going for 20, 30 years. I'm just saying they either got a hell of a time machine or they were sourcing for a long time. Sure. And, and they've, been, they've been a little too coy about, about that too. Is there, and sorry to cut you off on this, but there, there's a, a raging debate now, if you can call it that about you know is it is it four roses juice for example because they've got you know five yeast strains and two mash bills and it it matches up even if it's one percentage point off i think which is in 
in practice allowed by labeling standards to be within a certain percentage between bottle between uh, dumping and bottling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not saying anything. Diageo is not saying anything, of course. Right. Uh, but it's not. In, it's one of those things where it's possible that it's someone else, but it would have to be so ridiculously aligned that it's it's impractical for it to be someone else, you know. But that's right. where that's where we run into the opaque walls of all right. Well, you know, there's a legal barrier here now where we can't yes. ask any more questions. And um, the big brands yeah. definitely don't want to talk about that, but you're starting to see a lot of smaller brands where they're celebrating that. I mean, look at Lost Lantern, the mm-hmm. maker of each of these barrels, and they're all, you know, they're all single origin non-distillery producer. The original maker, the name is right on the front plate. Yeah. And here's a great couple. They're the nicest people. They go. They're, they're they, guests of the podcast. Yeah. They work with producers like us. They taste through a series of barrels. They pick ones that they think are the best for them. And I'm not saying I disagree with them. Some of, you know, but any two people you put in a room are going to have slightly different taste profiles. They take those barrels back to their home facility. They age them a little more or they let them finish up in, in that unique climate and, you know, in the great northern regions of our country. And then they bottle them with full transparency, where they're telling you exactly where these came from. And that's fantastic. And at the same time, there's also brands where the origin of how it's made is not the most important part. I mean, if if a country music star launches their own bourbon, is it really the yeast strain that causes people to buy it? Does Kenny Chesney mix every vat of rum of Blue Chair Bay? No, I mean, no shirt, no shoes, no problem. Like, I don't think the people that are drinking Kenny Chesney rum are under some suspicion that when he's not recording music, he's manning a still. Right. And if they yeah. are, I hate to break it to him. There's no Easter Bunny and there's no Santa Claus either. <laughs> um, and that doesn't make it a bad product. I mean, for what it's worth, it's great in a pina colada. And also what I what I appreciate is when brands where that isn't their origin story, where they don't try to fake it. I think consumers are actually very open to the idea that, you know, that again, that Kenny Chesney doesn't have to make the rum himself to have it be a great rum. But I think what we've learned is that transparency and honesty are really important. And again, I'll flip back to Barrel that you brought up. Um, I think they've updated their website since, but their website literally used to start with, we are not distillers. We make no whiskey. We find great whiskey and great rum and we blend it together and we finish it in beautiful ways and we bring you a unique expression never to be repeated again. The first three lines of their website told you exactly what they were doing. And if that works for you, if you want to experience that, buy their products. If you don't, if it if you must buy from the person that made it, then buy my products. Because um, for Black Button, we make all of our stuff. So I think as long as we're very open, very honest, um, I think there's room for everybody. And in some ways, again, it it provides a great opportunity. We have we have people that contract us to make their whiskey. They ship up their grain. We use their yeast mill, bill, but they only need two or three weeks a year of my facility. 
they can't really afford to practically run a good sized distillery that they only need a few days a year. But by co-producing with us, they get all the economies of scale of a fully fledged distillery and they get 48 weeks a year to focus on selling their brand and building their brand and telling their story to consumers. And you see all levels in between. Again, we have people that they literally grow the grain, but they bring it to us. And if we go back into history again, that was a common practice. You know, in Armagnac and Cognac, most farmers did not own their own stills. And there are still these beautiful traveling circuses almost. I mean, it's it's a distillery in an 18-wheeler and they pull up and they tilt the column up and they pump from that winery's vats and they give them back a distilled product to age or bottle or they'll they'll take some of it away in trade. Some of that's just good utilization of equipment. And it's also much more common in other industries than people might realize. There's a very large co-packer here in Western New York they make something like 85% of the pasta sauce in the United States. It's the recipes of these various brands. But when you walk into the supermarket, you know, I mean, you know, there's no Mr. Ragu still stirring a pot. There was in the 1960s, but many of the even nationwide brands again are made at a co-packer that, that buys many more tomatoes and has high speed canning lines. And, you know, these efficiencies of scale are what allow us to have a jar of pasta sauce for $2 and have most of that money go into the ingredients because the shared overhead is very efficient. You know, I mean, again, just very simply to run a canning line, you know, at 200,000 cases a night and run it three shifts, seven days a week is just much more efficient than doing it one day, you know, one shift, five days a week. And therefore that cost of production, that savings gets passed on to consumers. And we see some of that in this as well. If these large bourbon facilities can make more bourbon than they need, but sell it to someone who doesn't have to invest in that infrastructure and can now independently age it. I mean, we're seeing companies literally come up where they just buy on contract they age it and sell it, or they age it and sell it in bulk. Mm-hmm. And that's going to provide rise for so many more opportunities than was even possible. One last one, and then and then I'm sure you have some questions and I'm just yammering on too much. Pappy Van Winkle, one of the most storied brands in the United States today, was restarted through co-production. Julian Van Winkle, you know, his family had sold Stitzel Weller. He wanted to get back into the industry. He went around to these distilleries. Young kid has no money. Says, hey, I need 20 barrels. I need 30 barrels. I don't, but I can't pay you till after my distributor pays me. This is not a good deal for these distillers. You know, this, I mean, this kid might never pay them and they might be out 20 barrels of whiskey. So what can they give him? But I mean, many of them knew his grandfather and they and he had to help them. And so they and it's the dark days of whiskey. So it they want to help each other. It's a small community down in Kentucky still to this day. So what whiskey, is, you know, if he doesn't pay, is it not the end of the world? 
it's the stuff they don't need. It's the stuff that's in the corners of the warehouse that's kind of forgotten. And a lot of that ended up being stuff that was ultra aged. I mean, there's folks that would laugh at him and say, who you, you know, it's 1990. Who are you going to get to buy a 20 year old barrel of whiskey? But he made a brand out of it. And obviously now if, you know, these, I mean, these in the early nineties, a 15 year old Pappy went for 40 bucks. Obviously, if you bought a few cases of that, you would be considerably more economically advantaged today. And today it is now made at Buffalo Trace and they do the whole thing on site. But it was well into the 2000s. I mean, barely 20 years ago that that really started. And yet it clearly hasn't slowed that brand down at all. And that was still happening when they, I think the timing's right, when they won that either 100 point or 99 point rating that really made the brand take off in the popular consciousness that would have still been i think before the buffalo trace stuff was ready i think so, it was aged it finished its aging at buffalo trace because he did move some whiskey over there with him when they co-opt with the brand mm-hmm. but yes i'm not i don't know that those alcohol ethanol molecules were born in the right. vats at, Buff, at buffalo trace right and still fantastic juice yep yeah. yeah look i Recently found a uh, bar out on Long Island. It's a restaurant, I should say, that has a bar that they're selling Pappy Van Wiggle 15 for 45 bucks for two ounces. You don't you don't see it anywhere, let alone in or anywhere near the city. So yep. I got around for the table because I was like, you're not going to get this for this price again. So yep. enjoy it. Um, the 12 year was 30 bucks. It was crazy. Uh, you do hit upon a, a really important point and. I want to go to the kind of the issue of sourcing and transparency mm-hmm. as the first thing to go to, which, you know, we're about a decade away from, I think the um, rightful, but brouhaha around, let's say Templeton, um, Widow Jane got hit with it, a, a couple of companies. Those are just the two that are coming to mind, but there were a couple of companies that got uh, hit for being misleading or not transparent enough about where their whiskey is coming from. Yep. And, uh, you know, since then I have to say, I have a single barrel of Templeton 10 year old and I love it. I don't care that it wasn't made in Iowa, but or Ohio or wherever it was, but I know where it's made and I like it. Um, but when you're starting a company and we talked about this with a recent guest, Red River in Alabama, when you're starting a company, a whiskey company, and you want to, produce something you really have three options you can either source and transition over the couple of years you can if you've got the financial resources to do so you can distill and just sit on it until it's ready Uh, or you can do that step but also produce uh, gins vodkas and things that will sell in the meantime and it's really those three things there's such a high barrier to entry with costs of things like you know, if you, maybe you can't afford to buy a still, yep. or maybe you want to get a Vendome one, but there's a year and a half waiting list or something, and you're not a priority because you're a small distiller, a small potential distiller, even at that. So, the source, but I think the sourcing game, if you will, has become a lot better over the last, I, I think, through, through the last 10 years, particularly since. 
since that all went down and since I think the TTB got a little stricter on the labeling, there's still things that pass through, but uh, they've gotten a lot better about it. And you're right. The consumers are more open to understanding that maybe this whiskey is about the story and not about the place. Some were buying it because of celebrity whiskeys. Some are, you know, they, they want a Kentucky bourbon, uh, but they don't want to pay the heaven Hill price, let's say, or the bean price, but they'll pay what, you know, I'm just throwing the name out here, but what total wine might be selling. And it's a couple of dollars less. It's ostensibly the same whiskey. And yeah, I think overall, just the, the transparency has been so, so much better that now we turn in a way to the opposite side of the, we, we go through the looking glass and now we're looking at, all right, who's, um, who's not transparent enough at this point, who's saying it's coming from, or not saying it's coming from Canada, who's, and I got in trouble earlier this year for questioning a rather quick growing brand about this. And Okay, so before I forget this question, because you're moving across states and across borders and all of that, I guess that you're pretty familiar at this point with the regulations for what's, at least in the US, about like what's straight whiskey, what's a blend of straight whiskey, things like that. Yep. So having a discussion with a friend of mine who is one of those like really intense bourbon researchers, and he does a great job. And uh, we were trying to decide if... Like at what point the straight designation happens for the distillate itself. So we know that straight generally will, will mean it's two years old, at least for a whiskey. Uh, and normally you would have the state of distillation as part of it. So it's a Kentucky straight or an Indiana straight, whatever. Or, or in the case of barrel, a blend of straight whiskeys is from multiple states. And yeah. But if you if you were to distill something, let's say let's say you distilled at MGP, got new make from MGP, brought it over before it touches wood to Kentucky, just put it right across the river, and you age it in Kentucky for two years, can that be called Kentucky straight whiskey or is that still Indiana? This month's Impact Spotlight is on White Heather and McNair's blended whiskeys and the tales of the two men who made these venerable brands what they are. The first is Billy Walker, a 2021 Icons of Whiskey Hall of Fame inductee and owner of the Glenallachy, another Impex brand and a recent podcast guest. Billy has over five decades of experience in the Scotch world. With White Heather unshow filtered blended whiskey, Billy returns to his roots. White Heather was relaunched in 2021 with a 21-year-old blended Scotch, and is now joined by a 15-year-old edition. Both feature 47% single malt in their blend and draw from top stocks in Isla, Speyside, and the Highlands. The 15-year-old is matured in American and Spanish oak casks for a beautiful blend of honey, malt, wispy smoke, and candied citrus. The 21-year-old is matured in American oak and cherry butts for 18 years before a final three years in PX and Oloroso punchins. This is plus time in medium toast and medium char Appalachian oak for a final burst of sweetness and complexity. The second story is of Harvey McNair. 
McNair was the essence of a Victorian Scotsman. He accomplished many trades and travels in his lifetime, and more than anything, he loved and championed the natural, unadulterated color of whiskey. Pure gold, as he called it. Pure gold was the foundation of the whiskey blends he created. Today's McNair Uncho Filtered Blended Whiskey, thanks to Billy Walker, honors Harvey's legacy, marrying peated malt, Highland, Isla, and Speyside with Glenallachie spirit. This is a blend for the peat lovers. To find all of these whiskeys and any Impex product, visit a premium spirits retailer near you. You can also visit Impex at www.impexbev.com or email office at impexbev.com for those harder to find releases. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. So I do not have a law degree. Sure. My reading of chapter four of the standards of identity, um, the, I guess two things that, that I, as I understand it, that reflect what you're talking about. First of all, Kentucky has their own rules about using the word Kentucky in whiskey. Mm-hmm. And for the state of Kentucky, it must be made there, aka distilled there, aged there its entire life and bottled there. Uh, so I don't believe that's a federal requirement, but the state of Kentucky does require that. Um, now, the other part that's worth knowing, because we have faced this question, the aging of a spirit, actual, as, as far as we understand it, the TTB only counts the initial barrel. So back to that Kentucky that went to Texas that was finished in a port barrel, seven years in a new bourbon barrel, five years in a port cast. Mm-hmm. Is that 12 years old? Not as I understand it with the TTB. Technically, that mm-hmm. is seven years old. Now, the, right. the brand that ended up bottling it chose to define, chose to put no age statement on it, which is allowed over four years, mm-hmm. but to explain its whole journey. And actually, they drew a nice little map because uh, this stuff was well-traveled um, and because it had also aged about a year up here in New York with us by the time we found the right buyer for it. Most products don't actually cross through our warehouse. This particular one did. Um, usually we arrange to ship it straight from where it's made to where it needs to go just to save on shipping. But um, but technically, as far as the TTB was concerned, that was a seven-year-old whiskey that had just been in a secondary cask for another five years. So to answer, so my take on your question, if it was distilled at MGP but taken to Kentucky, put into a barrel there, I do not believe it should be called Kentucky straight whiskey, um, at least again by Kentucky standards. But yeah, I mean, the most of the clients that we work with also take transparency very seriously. Um, you you know, pretty quickly you get to know these guys. And I'll be honest, folks, that we find a little sketchy. Um, there's plenty of reasons for us to not want to do business with them from the fact that if you're willing to lie to consumers, you're probably willing to lie to me and your bank and you might not come through with the deposit uh, or the money that you commit to. So generally, I find that I prefer the more upstanding brands. Um, everybody has different opinions on how um, how much transparency is required. 
and again, I think some of it depends on the what the brand is talking about. I mean, if you've got, a, I'm just going to go back to the famous musician. If if it's all about the music, man, <laughs> you know they're not getting into deep detail, and yet Lost Lantern is at the other end of it, where they'll tell you the date it was made and the date it was bottled and exactly who made it and exactly the mash bill. And and you see Bardstown Bourbon doing a great job with their fusion series and literally giving you the percentages of the ages and the mash bills. Mm-hmm. And some of that I think speaks to the customer you're going after. You know, if, if it's a $30 bottle and it's all about the music, I don't know that the customers care, but if they're going to drop $80, $90 and they really geek out on those answers, then then they want to know. And the brands that want to go after that need to provide that. And we're starting to see a lot of that radical transparency in rum. I mean, Real McCoy Rum is putting a nutritional fact label on the back of their bottle because they do no sugar added, no color added, you know, no um, gimmicks. And what they want you to then question is, wait a minute, is Malibu rum liqueur even rum? Not legally. Um, and you know, we're just at the beginning of that because 10 years ago, nobody was asking that about rum and whiskey and now they are. And, and I think there, I think there's a big enough, um, you know, I think there's a big enough place that we can all play in that, but, but I think brands have to decide if they're going to wear a white hat or if they're going to ignore it. And I think most brands pick one early on and, and consumers have to vote with their dollars. Again, if if that transparency is important to you, give your money to the brands that support that. I mean, that that's kind of the coolest thing about capitalism, in my opinion. Every time you spend money, you get to vote. If you don't like how Nestle pulls water out of the desert and other questionable practices, don't buy... Nestle bottled water. It and if you don't like, you know, Templeton not fully being transparent about the fact that it's not made in Iowa, they or that they were, then don't buy Templeton because there's lots of other great whiskeys. And at the same time, if it doesn't bother you, because and I'm not saying it needs to, I actually agree with you. I've had some great Templeton rise. I know they're not made in Iowa. I don't require them to do it. They're not my. It's not my first pick, probably, but. I, I have a bottle or two of it and I, you know, I have the whole range in my cabinet. So I think people, I think it will sort itself out. And as people, as the, as the market matures and people ask more and more of those questions, brands will have to either become more transparent or they have to go after a consumer who cares less about that. You're right. And the, the point about voting with your dollars is very well taken is maybe this is an overgeneralization, but I would, I kind of get the the feeling that more of those more bottles that we're unsure about, or are at least not disclosed fully where it's from, they're falling more into the kind of upper double digits to the low triple digits in price range rather than more than focusing on the 25 30 under 50 range 
And when you start having a 15 year old bourbon that, you know, it's from an NDP and you don't know where it's from. Again, like you said, some people won't care. Some people will just say it's a 15 year old bourbon that will look great at my boss's desk and it's a nice price point and all of that. Although, so I guess some of my question to that, there's, there's almost a brand promise, a brand question. So let's go back to the, the gentleman at barrel that you mentioned earlier. They aren't oftentimes for what they aren't actually allowed to disclose where it came from. It's a part of the contract of buying right. the whiskey. So it's not just that it's a choice question, mm-hmm. but also at this point, having done several hundred blends of their own, they have a brand and reputation. And, you know, I'm not doubting you, but your point earlier that the gold and silver from a while ago didn't meet those prices for you. That it obviously impacted their brand and standing in your mind. But I would, I guess my question would be if they come out with another 15 year old whiskey, if they've put their stamp of approval, if they're gatekeeping that for you, and they're saying, we believe that this whiskey is worth $200, there's almost more of a question are you willing to try it based on their reputation more so than where it might have come from? Yeah, and that that's a completely fair point. And uh, staying with the example of Barrow because it's easy. And uh, if the people from Barrow are listening, great guys for what? It's yeah, worth. I've been talking with them for a long time. I have a single barrel coming out with them, so I I really have no uh-huh. problem with any of their practices. I and I appreciate what they're doing. And part of what I part of what I wrote about those two releases in particular was simply that it's not that it's a bad product. It's a very good product, even a great one. One of them. Actually, multiples, I think, were at least in the mid sevens to even a couple broke eight out of 10 in my scores, which not a lot of things do. Like to get over an eight, you need to kind of start hitting some intangible notes. And I said, it's not about the product. I trust them to make a good blend to know how to bring disparate whiskeys together into something cohesive that, uh, you know, even if we don't get to taste the parts, I'm, I trust them that it's better as the sum of the parts than the parts themselves. Um, That was a very word salad way of saying that, but I think people understand what I meant. Uh, So yeah, there is a a trust to that. And I trust Barrel to make a good blend. It was more, I was thinking that just at at the price points that they were at, that they were just going to sit. And Honestly, it's it's borne out. I've been seeing, I still see the same releases a year plus later on store shelves or really mostly behind cases, let's be honest, not on the shelf. Uh, and, you know, in their case, it's not because it's a bad whiskey. It's because people are looking at it's like, do I want to spend $500 on this or even $250 if it's a, the silver label? You know, some people, yes, some people no. Some people went after the silver dovetail because it's dovetail and they love what they did with dovetail. I thought it was a great whiskey. It So with that, I have the luxury as I'm sure you do, you get to taste things. So I had the luxury of getting a media sample of that, tasting it and not having to spend the 250 on it. So I could make and, the comment of that, you know? And I'm, I'm probably a bad example of this. Um, for those that aren't familiar with Rochester, New York, you can make a good living, you know, and buy a house that you are comfortable 
living in four bedroom house in a nice, nice enough neighborhood that you can send your kids to a decent school for 200, $250,000. You know, it, we pay industry leading wages uh, up here at our distillery and it's, you know, my top guys make less than the bottlers make down in Brooklyn. Um, you know, I've got friends. I mean, I, I struggle when I go down to Brooklyn and the hotel is $500 a night because you, there's places you can stay up here for a week. Mm -hmm. Um, so personally, even being in the industry, I, I am always so appreciative of the opportunity to try these bottles. I have a hard time spending more than about a hundred bucks on a bottle of whiskey. Mm -hmm. And of the 45 products that we make under the black button label, only three are over that number. And they're all our super premium cast strength, single barrel. You know, we lose 57% of the barrel to evaporative losses. We're aging in a port cast, sometimes up to five years. These are, and, and honestly at $250 a bottle, I make 300 bottles of that a year. I'm still probably losing money on it by the time you take it all into account. Um, so I'm not knocking. I mean, th there's an interesting question again of capitalism and a market economy. If barrels only going to make a thousand cases, if there are a thousand cases worth of people in this country that will pay that, then that's the right price. Um, mm -hmm. But whether they hit that exactly right or not, we'd have to ask them based on their sales data because also, I think what might have worked in 2019 and what's working in 2022 could be very different. Um, yeah. And I think each year in between was actually different. I mean, look at direct-to-consumer shipping during 2020. You know, nobody can travel, nobody can go out, but you can have your neighbors over and sit in your driveway and, you know, in camping chairs and sip a little whiskey that you like slide on a skateboard to them. Mm -hmm. We did that. Um, and, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, you, you used to, you would have gone out to a sushi restaurant and spent a hundred dollars on dinner and now you can put it into a bottle. But as the restaurants open back up, as people start traveling to Europe again, all of a sudden the, the direct to consumer market for that collapsed over the last 12 to 14 months. And now, you know, we're all reading in the newspaper every day that, you know, the recession is coming and I, I don't know if it is, but. I think, A, there's plenty of people that have quite a bit of whiskey at home at on the expensive range. And B, you might not want to be dropping $1,000 a month on a few whiskey bottles. Um, and, and I think many consumers, they drink a range because we see this with wine as well. You know, my go-to bottles in my home inventory, obviously besides my own, mm -hmm. um, are pretty cost-effective. And yet I've got some really higher end ones that, you know, for friends that really like whiskey or that really challenging night for me, um, I love being able to pull out. So I think people have that variety and, you know, and, and again, we'd have to ask Barrel if their sales data, you know, looking back, would they price it any differently? Because I think, although obviously the cost to make the blend impact what someone can charge for it at the end of the day this is a market-based economy mm -hmm. and especially this industry if you think you can get 250 dollars a bottle if there's enough i mean that i always not to be wandering all over the place i always find it a little interesting when the local bourbon groups get really upset because a store will put 
um, you know, Old Forester birthday bourbon up at $900. Guys, and highway robbery. Guys, if someone is willing to pay that, then the law of capitalism literally says the store should wait till that person comes in because they're only going to get two or three bottles. I don't like it. It's not fair. It's frustrating. But the world's not a meritocracy. And many of these same people would like to buy it for 100 and resell it on the Internet at 900. So it's hard to blame the liquor store owner for saying, wait a minute, why should I let you break the law and generate this obscene profit? When I took the risk and have the license and have the inventory, and I think I have the customer for it. I mean, it, you know, and there are plenty of stores that choose not to do that. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, in some ways, there's no good answer for allocated whiskey for a store. The lottery system pisses people off. Holding it in the back for your best customers pisses people off. Selling it at secondary pricing pisses people off. And honestly, even putting it on the shelf at normal MSRP pisses people off and you don't make any money. Right. At least in the third one, you piss people off, but you made a <laughs> lot of money. And as independent store owners, they get to decide to do that. And again, I'm back to voting with your dollars. If, if there's a store in your neighborhood that does one of those systems that you would prefer, the lottery or keeping it in the back or just putting it out on MSRP, then that's where you should do your shopping. Even if it is 20 minutes further away from your house, because you get to vote with your dollars. <laughs> so go to the stores that do it the way you want to do it. Yeah. Look, I'll be honest. I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I have pretty solid collection at the house. And that's being um, what my wife would call uh, facetiously modest. And, you know, I know that. So let me put it this way. In transparency, I had uh, actually recorded another episode earlier today with um, a couple of guys making great gin out of Ireland. And I was saying to them that if I'm going out, yeah, unless I come across something like the Pappy for for 45 bucks or something, most of the time when I go out, I'm getting a cocktail or some kind of mixed drink because what I've got at home is better than what most bars even in the city have like i can i can count them on hand and name the bars that have a either a larger or a uh a large collection or a collection with enough different things that i don't have that i would want to go there and try from them and i'm yep. good friends with those guys because there are so few of them they know each other and they know they have a product that is unique yep. some of them are single barrels that they get for their store that they buy from brokers to have for their store just like you would in an old saloon or an old yeah. bar behind the counter uh, you have to bottle it now a little different but you know other than that it's it's not dissimilar um so uh with that uh i also in case i forget i wrote down a question a second question for you that i'm going to ask you offline um people are going to be like well what, what are we including here but um it's definitely a question for offline when when you after you got that initial call where the guy was bemoaning having 30,000 barrels that he had to to move and you're thinking to yourself okay can make something out of this between then and now 
what does the what does the marketplace look like in terms of like how many how many people how many companies are providing this service how many companies are like brokering yeah yeah so i'd say there's five main broker companies um and if you just google bulk alcohol you'll come up with websites for most of them (laughs) uh and then there's probably about two dozen independent operators so oftentimes these independent operators um one person gmail account no website cell phone you know just a cell phone um i would say that 75 to 80 percent of the deals go through the the five big ones of which i would count us as the smallest of those five um and the newest um and then the last 10 15 percent are through those that about dozen independent operators so um and oftentimes the independent operators specialize so you know there's a guy in ireland that really just deals in irish whiskey there's a guy in there's several guys in kentucky and they have you know a specific relationship with this distillery or that distillery um and then the the bigger brokers tend to cover larger things so um we have a partnership with one of the largest rum conglomerates on the planet that traces their origins back to the dutch east india company and we take care of their clients sub tanker in north america uh for them because the logistics of bringing it over in full containers and landing it at our place and then splitting it out for domestic production is much more cost effective than bringing small amounts over we have a similar relationship with a calvados producer in france that has been going you know since before world war ii um and is actually basically on the shores of normandy we have a similar one with basically the mgp of french brandy and that probably still goes down as one of the most amazing experiences of my life when i go over there and you know it's this little company and we meet at their warehouse and you know and taste some samples and we're talking about the u.s brandy market and then we go out to their rick house and we we pull up to this little mound maybe 10 20 feet tall um and there's a little staircase and and a double door and the man just pulls out a, a normal house key and opens it up and i step through this door uh into total darkness and he comes behind me and flicks the light on and as the lights click on 50 rows to my left and 50 rows to my right and as far as my eye can see what i eventually learned was 250 rows deep were 50,000 liter wooden fooders full of brandy going back 40 years 2.1 million gallons on site and sorry i take that back largest tank could hold 2.1 million gallons on site was 24 million gallons Jeez. pretty much the largest privately owned reserve brandy stockpile on the planet and they were interested in my opinion 
on how American drinkers might approach brandy. And that could maybe be a topic for a different conversation. Sure. But I mean, I, I love American whiskey. I've spent 11 years making my uh, living with bourbon and rye. Uh, I told these guys to, to their face at the beginning and they turned me around that, that although I was happy to work with them, I'm, you're never going to convince me at home on a Friday night to drink something other than a bourbon Manhattan or a bourbon old fashioned. I, that's what I've consumed since I was 21 years old. Sure. And we went into their office and they made me an old fashioned that was half brandy and half rye and a little sugar cube. And I was blown away because the complexity and the depth and the fruitiness, it was better. I, I, and they let me taste both products that went into it. And those two coming together, I swear to God, was better than I would have expected for the sum of the parts. And David, at the end of this, if you shoot me your address, I will send you a little sample kit. You should try this because I, I would have bet large amounts of money. I, and I told them right before I drank from this glass that they were wasting their time. And if you think of brandy as the cheap $9 bottle of peach palmasan, that is to fire, you know, that is to brandy what fireball is to whiskey. And I think we are headed for a great expansion of a lot of other products, not just, I mean, the American whiskey um, boom is opening people's eyes to cocktail opportunities and ready to drink cocktail opportunities and making cocktails at home. And as people get more and more adventurous, they're going to want to try more than just three-year-old MGP thrown into a bottle. Mm -hmm. And that's going to, again, give rise to craft producers that are using heritage grains or people blending interesting things from around the world, or even just bringing craft products together. I, I have a client right now that's bringing rye whiskey from four different states, some of it pot still, some of it column still, bringing it all together and blending up really unique ryes that should hit the market probably first around the first of the year. And they're all craft from all over. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the collaboration between Leopold Brothers and George Dickel. Very traditional, column distilled, clean Tennessee rye and funky Colorado triple chamber rye. And again, I, I know both Todd and Nicole. Um, I had the opportunity to taste the base of each as well as their final product. And a lot of hard work went into getting those two to wrap together in a beautiful harmony. And in my opinion, they knocked it out of the park with both batches. And, and they might be on to batch three, but I've, I've only had the first two. Um, and those, again, are, are great opportunities and a great... I mean, I was really impressed that a company as large as Diageo would be as transparent as to where that came from. And I think that is starting a whole new cycle. And do we see more of that? You know, does Buffalo Trace partner with, you know, Catoctin Creek in Virginia mm -hmm. or 
you know, uh, Boston Harbor out in Boston, like, you know, I, I think there is just an unending opportunity for great innovation. But all that being said, I do think that, you know, it's a lot easier to grasp those innovations at, all, at under $100 a bottle. I'm just going to throw that out. No, I, I think you're, I, you're spot on with that. So, I mean, I have a couple of follow-ups here that I've got to do. Number one, well, just to list a few of them, the uh, blend that's being made just outside of Edinburgh. Because I want to find that one. I, I'm recently become obsessed with cross, cross-border blending, let's say. Um, and I will uh, trade you a sample, one I gave to Ari as well, that is a bottle it's a it was a bottle made for lou rosenstiel's 75th birthday okay when he was uh, still president of shenley and uh it's 60 percent canadian 20 percent kentucky bourbon 20 percent scotch all at least 12 years old uh in a beautiful glass decanter and i found it randomly the guy who didn't know what he had and just was like eh, i want to get rid of it and it's some of the best stuff i've ever had and i really yeah. want to explore more of that because we're starting to see as a couple of examples you pointed out lost lantern is doing independent bottling of single distilleries are also doing their own blend and um, as i mentioned i've had uh nora and adam on the podcast they're great to be connected with the guys at borrowed page doing multiple distilleries from around the country and creating new american whiskeys and i love those too but i'm particularly interested in the cross-border and mixing a Canadian, an American, maybe a Scotch, maybe an Irish, uh, and seeing the complexities of those styles brought together in, in something. So we'll see if it can be done at a price point, but that's that's a different conversation as well. Uh, and we'll definitely, I'm definitely going to have you back as well to talk about that brandy conversation, because that's, I think, a really great question. And we have not really talked about brandy or cognac armagnac any of these things from the podcast standpoint and yet that barrel single barrel i mentioned that's coming out uh should be actually when this episode goes live it should be just a couple of weeks away so you know listen and subscribe um it's a rye fin- from uh, canada and indiana blended by barrel and then aged in armagnac casks mm-hmm. or sorry finished in armagnac casks not not full maturation but finished in them and uh, to a point earlier, I asked, couldn't disclose who the Armagnac house was. That's, that's fine. That's the name of the game. That's the nature of the business. But it's still some damn good stuff. And of all the spirits out there right now, I used to think rum was the most reasonably like under the radar pricing wise. But some of these super aged cognacs and Armagnacs, are just unbelievable age statements for you know getting a 40 or 50 year old one for 200 250 bucks which sound i know it sounds like a lot to people listening and saying but think about but you are transporting back in time right i mean you talk about a 40 year old bottle that was laid down before i was born same yeah before the cell phone was invented mm-hmm Possibly getting close to when the seatbelt was invented. I mean, I not I'm not 
to be bragging, but I had the opportunity while over in France to taste a brandy from pre-Philoxia, so pre-1890. Wow. We're talking about, ta- I mean, and don't be wrong, it was the tiniest, like two millimeters, two milliliters, wow. but it, you know, it was 130 years old. But we're literally talking about a time before the world wars, before the internal combustion engine mm-hmm. had been invented. It was closer to Napoleon than me. And that's an incredible thing to think about all the history that this barrel has witnessed, especially in France. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, to yeah. have survived two world wars where they actually buried the casks like under the floor of the barn so that it didn't get taken by the invading soldiers. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible what these things went through and obviously a lot of depth of character in that time. Sure. The Not, not to be sidetracking this too much, but um, the other really interesting thing about Brandy, if you take four-year-old whiskey and add 1% 12-year-old whiskey, you have four-year-old whiskey. That That's what it tastes like. Mm. But if you take four-year-old whiskey, four-year-old brandy and add 1% 12 or 25-year-old brandy, I'm not going to say it's 25-year-old, but it's incredible the amount of movement that even one or 2% married into that delivers. And because of that complexity anomaly is all I'll call it. You have the opportunity where you can produce stuff that tastes like a 12 and a 20 year old, but costs closer to a four year old. And most brandy costs about half what American whiskey does. So we're talking about the equivalent on the shelf of like a two year old MGP. Right. And now all of a sudden making cocktails and i do think this will be led with the the bars if a bar can make you a 15 dollar cocktail with a great product that's half the price they're very interested in that mm-hmm. and i think as they move into that with rum there is some obnoxiously cheap rum in <laughs> on this planet some of that just being where it's made and and how it's made and the exchange rates i mean from the Caribbean to Venezuela to Puerto Rico, you can make large volumes of rum incredibly cost effectively. And since you can use reuse the barrel 15, 20 times, your barreling costs are limited. And that again is going to produce these great, you know, incredible products that we're going to see over the next few years. And again, I'm going to circle back to this is a very almost surreal, almost out of body experience for a guy who who started out and still does. I mean, I'm I'm getting a beer tomorrow night with my farmer so we can talk about how like the the smoke that's been coming down from Canada and the very strange rains we've had is affecting the bloody butcher corn that's growing in our field. And we're and we're getting a drink after dark. Because I don't know any farmer that's available during daylight hours to talk to you. And so it's an incredible thing to me. It's an incredible privilege to be involved in all these interesting projects alongside our own brand where we, you know, again, we put the corn in the ground and get all the way to serving you the cocktail in the tasting room. 
And normally you don't get to do those things, but it's, you don't get to do both, but it's leveraging 11 years of industry experience, 11, you know, many years before that of sales experience. And I, not, and now I really am tooting my own horns. So you have to cut me off. This is not a commercial for Black Button Strategic Sourcing Hub. Um, but a lot, we spend a lot of time trying to put round pegs in round holes because trying to force square pegs into round holes just causes problems. We have people that want to consign whiskey with us that we won't take. And it's not because it's bad. We just, we don't think we're going to find the right fit for them whether that's price or availability, there actually is quite a market for bad whiskey if it's cheap enough. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we we want happy customers that come back again and again, and we want happy suppliers that want to sell again and again. The best thing that we're selling is that reputation and that process. The product is whiskey, but what we're really selling is customer service. And I could argue that that's almost what makes the world go round. I mean, why do these brands send you a media sample? Why do they work with you? Why are they willing to do a single barrel with you? It's because they want to work with you. They don't have to. There's other people they can work with. And I'm not saying they don't work at all with people they don't like, but they don't send their best stuff to people right. they don't like. Whereas again, I imagine yeah. you're pretty high up on the list. I have tried some of the, let's say that I've tried some of the things that get reused. And I've also tried some of the things that get sent fresh and uh there is indeed a difference that will never be admitted to but there is indeed a difference so um and i'm very thankful to those who send the latter uh i'm gonna ask one more question and then i will let you go for tonight because i have a couple of places i have a couple questions i want to ask you quickly offline but um the last question i have for you was in between dealing with uh barrels totes you know volumes of of spirit do you also dabble in the empty cask market? So we generally refer that out. Um, we've had a couple of instances where just kind of almost by, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about this is what I call chaos theory. The more people we're talking to, the more we just happen upon natural connections so I had somebody ask me if I could get them a thousand empty rum casts. And I was like, I don't really know where to start. And two days later, somebody said, Hey, I have 2000 empty rum casks for sale. <laughs> and, uh, and we were able to put those together. Um, there's about 30 or 40 empty barrel brokers around the world. Um, again, we often partner with them either to take care of empty barrels after we've sent full barrels somewhere or because we have someone that wants to buy whiskey and finish it in port casts. And if we can point them in the right direction, that helps. But we have, at least for the moment, chosen to stick to full barrels. Um, it just works better for us. And we have the licensing to do that. So again, there are fewer, you'll notice there were many fewer people that deal with full casts rather than empty casts. Sure. Um, again, if you know, if there was a market need and we can help, I'm not opposed, but, um, but his, that, that industry seems to be much more regionalized because you're just, although, you know, again, Madeira cast make their way across the Atlantic. Um, the, the value per volume, you know, you're not, you're not often buying a bourbon barrel 
from Kentucky, shipping it to Texas, shipping it to New York. If it's full and worth thousands and thousands of dollars, that works. If it's empty and worth 200, it doesn't work. Right. Um, so yeah. So again, great, great people that focus on that. Um, we also have primarily avoided like the vodka and bulk gin markets. If we get asked, we have some contacts, we can make it happen, but age spirits is where my true desire and interest lies. And to me, those lots are much more unique. I mean, many, many of the things we sell will never happen again. Um, and that's a really exciting puzzle to figure out who is the right. I mean, again, we get a phone call. I've got a barrel of 30 year old McAllen, $1.2 million. Who do you know who's interested? I, I don't just like have a list of people. I have my overall list, but you don't like, also, I'm not going to send out an email blast about that because right. you'd get a lot of, can I get a sample mm -hmm. uh, from people? Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible amount of money. I, I, I know whole distilleries that were built for less than a million dollars. And this is one cask, but for the right individual who lives in LA, uh, who has starred in more than one major motion picture, and this is not a problem for them. Not only was $10,000, you know, uh, for the deposit for the sample, not an issue, but, uh, they'll probably pony up the money for it. And if they don't, they're not afraid to walk away from 10 grand. Whereas like, if you told me I get, you know, I mean, we're talking about 10 grand for like a 200 milliliter sample. Mm -hmm. That's expensive stuff. Mostly it's that the seller wants to make sure you're serious. Mm -hmm. um, and even in that, you know, I did not know this movie star personally. We don't like, I mean, I, I roll pretty deep up here in Rochester, New York, but uh, <laughs> we're not exactly Hollywood, but my team and I sat down, we looked through who we knew. And again, I mean, you can't, you can't go on eBay and look up, a, you know, can I get a barrel of 30 year old McAllen? You have to know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. And it's still a very personal, personal relationship world. And at the same time, we're opening that up to more people because not everybody can go to the end of Kentucky and strike a deal with a new Kentucky bourbon distillery that's just getting their feet under them. And in fact, if I was just doing it for one brand, it wouldn't be effective for me. But I drove 14 hours each way to meet these two gentlemen in a bean field, in a converted trailer for a distillery that hadn't even gotten a DSP to commit to some of their volume so that my customers could have access to Kentucky new make and be able to build their brands. And while I'm out doing that and talking to the farmer and working with folks and able to speak their language, the sales and marketing guys are hammering distributors. And I'll be honest, that's a part of the business we never really landed. So in some ways, we're you know, if we think about the whole value chain, we're focusing on the part of the value chain we're really good at and making folks that are really great at the other half able to connect with those resources. And there's enough of that value chain that it still works. And hopefully in time, even more transparency will come out of those things. Blockchain 
might open that. We'll have to see, you know, if every barrel had an individual QR code and you could trace that back, maybe. And you're seeing some of that from Bardstown, from Barrel, from more folks, from Last Lantern. And we'll we'll see where it all goes. This has been, as I said, I didn't really know where this conversation was going to go when I was coming into it. And it's gone many, many ways, some of which we will definitely have you back on to follow up on, talk more about. I am purely, I don't even want to stop the conversation right now. I'm purely doing it just so I can have some dinner at some point. Here's what I taste a few things tonight. But we'll do a second one of these. We'll do a follow-up. Absolutely. So Jason, again, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk about this uh, very under-talked about subject and everything that goes along with it. Um, hang on with me for a few minutes afterwards. I'll, I'll try to ask you those questions as yeah. quickly as possible. Uh, if you want to know more about the about the business, uh, we're going to include links to website, anything else you want to share with me uh, in the show notes. Also, be sure to listen to my episode with Alex from Black Button. Uh, that was, if you want to know more about Black Button distilling itself, it's a great place. I have multiple bottles, especially their bourbon cream you should look at. Personally, my favorite, and also I'm partial to the cast strength because as people know, I'm a proof whore. So both excellent pours and worthy to check out. Plus, I got to promote another New York distillery. So never a bad thing on that one. So with all that said, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, and we will, well, I guess that's it. Thank everybody for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. And I will see you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring, or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank for the support, and see you next time.